This is the Crisis Cleanup Podcast, just-in-time training and thoughtful conversation about voluntary disaster relief. I'm your host, Aaron Titus. Episode 3, Affiliated Volunteerism. This episode is the second in a series about disaster relief volunteerism. It's about trust, and trust goes both ways. TRO does a background check for all members. There's a lot of training opportunities, different types of special skills. People say, I'm not trained to do that. And you may not be trained, but you certainly might be able to do it. Let's start with the big, scary, and misunderstood elephant in the room. Liability. The L word causes stress and has an almost magical ability to stop any operation, good or bad. We need to move beyond the L word before we can start to solve the problems of disaster relief volunteerism. With a few common sense exceptions, relief organizations are responsible for the actions of their volunteers. This episode isn't about legal doctrines, court cases, or legal advice. And to be explicit, you should seek advice from qualified legal counsel if you have specific questions. But I will give you one practical piece of advice. People who bring up liability in a discussion generally have no clue what they're talking about. In fact, I want you to pay attention the next time you hear the word liability in a conversation. I'd be willing to bet that the person who brings up liability, one, works behind a desk, not in the field, two, is probably not a lawyer, three, is against whatever is being proposed, four, it's not their job to solve the problem at hand, five, might be in the minority, and six, is using the L word to in-debate on the subject and get their way. Don't get me wrong, liability is a thing. It's a bad thing. But liability is what happens after something bad happens and it caused harm, and you fought about it, and you lost. Liability is the scary, nearly unknowable thing that happens at the end. Because liability isn't real until after someone is harmed, and you fight about it, and you lose, you can't have a coherent discussion about minimizing it. It's just a big, scary word. And people who talk about liability know that it's big and scary, which is why they bring it up. For one reason or another, they prefer inaction, and the word liability has an uncanny ability to inspire inaction. People who talk about liability are usually problem makers, not problem solvers. Instead, listen to people who talk about risk. These are the problem solvers. See, liability is the last domino in a series of three dominoes. The first domino is risk. Some risky behavior, but not all, can create harm which is the second domino. Now, I mean harm in the general sense of the word. Someone loses money, gets hurt, has missed expectations, gets angry, quits volunteering, has damage to their property, makes the organization look bad, and so on. Everyone knows that it's risky to speed while driving, but most of us do it anyway, and most of the time, that risk does not result in harm. And some people smoke their whole lives without contracting cancer. That isn't to say that you should smoke or speed, but just to illustrate that not all risk creates harm. However, the opposite is not true. Harm does not happen without risk first. If that second harm domino falls, then sometimes, but not always, it creates liability, which is the final domino. Again, I mean liability in the general sense. You lose a court dispute, or you're unable to recruit volunteers or raise funds, and so on. Here's the point. If you stop the first domino from falling, none of the others will fall. 
If you decrease risk, then you're less likely to cause harm. If you never cause harm, then you won't have liability. And fortunately, there are tried and true methods to reduce risk. They are broadly, first, reduce risky behavior, second, insure against the risk, and third, push the risk off onto someone else. Whenever you hear the word liability, redirect the discussion to risk. Say something like, liability is what happens after we get sued and lose. Let's be proactive and minimize the risk so we never get sued in the first place. What's the risky behavior we're trying to prevent? If you redirect the conversation in this way, you can actually start to solve the problem at hand while minimizing risk, harm, and liability in the process. Okay, that's risk and liability 101. So what does this have to do with disaster volunteering? Well, for better and worse, all of the models of volunteering revolve around how you allocate risk. Do you reduce it? Does the survivor, volunteer, or organization bear it? What happens when there is no organization? Can you afford insurance? And how does that limit what your volunteers can do? How you allocate risk has an enormous impact on how quickly and effectively volunteers can respond and whether relief organizations can use them at all. We'll come back to this concept of risk allocation in the next few episodes. I was a volunteer during the 2002 Winter Olympics in Salt Lake City. I underwent a background check, was trained, and reported every day to a supervisor. The closing ceremonies include the parade of athletes. I was assigned to guide the gold medalist Canadian hockey team to the stadium. But the Canadians decided to skip the closing ceremonies and party somewhere else. My assignment canceled, I found myself with nowhere to report, no responsibilities, and a pretty sweet security pass. So I decided to see how far it would take me. More than a thousand athletes waited at the stadium entrance. I made my way to the front of the crowd, taking time to shake hands and admire gold, silver, and bronze medals along the way. About ten minutes before the parade of athletes, security personnel began shooing away volunteers. I showed them my security pass, and they let me stay. Five minutes later, a television producer asked me what I was doing there. I'm here to help any way I can, I replied. Just let me know what I can do for you. Satisfied, he disappeared. Two minutes before the big moment, another NBC producer shouted to me, Are you here to lead the athletes in? Yep, that's me. On his cue, I confidently walked into the Olympic Stadium, leading the athletes. The person who was supposed to lead the athletes walked in behind me. Whether you're volunteering at the Olympics, at a community food bank, or after a disaster, all volunteerism rests on three pillars, trust, training, and supervision. The purpose of trust, training, and supervision is to reduce risk. Less risk equals less harm, and less harm equals less liability. A lot of folks have asked me in the past, well, why do I need to even sign up with an organization to volunteer? This is Carrie Olenek. Northern Colorado Division Director of Volunteers of America. We don't have to explain to them exactly what you said. It's about trust, and trust goes both ways. So we act as that go-between, so that that volunteer knows that they're helping out somebody that they don't know already, and then that person has been screened and found to be open to having a volunteer, and that it's going to be a safe environment for that volunteer to go into. On the other end of that, we also help screen those volunteers who are going into a stranger's home so that 
program participant, um, which in our case is usually seniors, knows that that volunteer um, has been vetted. And we do that in several different ways. We do in-person interviews. We'll follow up with personal references, kind of like if you're applying for a job. And we do background checks as well. And each of those steps are just one piece of establishing that trust. Trust is a continuum. Community, emergent, and faith communities often know one another because they have a shared interest or worship together and often volunteer together in other settings. Formal organizations and governments prefer background checks, as Yusra Kapila, Clayhunt Fellow with Team Rubicon in Region 9, explains. TR does a background check for, for all members as well, given the fact that we deploy and we sleep in open squad bays, you know, all together, we, we do a background check before somebody's cleared for, for deployment. The theory of a background check is that people who have not done something bad in the past are less likely to do something bad in the future. The level of trust required also depends on the activity. Some activities, such as filling sandbags, do not require much trust. We just need to know you're not going to go postal with the shovel. In contrast, supervising children at a public shelter or taking cash donations requires high levels of trust. Once you've established trust with an organization, the next step is training. Again, user Capilla. So once you get through that process, there's a lot of training opportunities, different different types of special skills. Um, and if you already have your FEMA qualifications, then you're able to upload those certificates into your uh, personal profile. Too many times in our lives, people step back and they look and they say, I'm not trained to do that. This is Kat Graham from Humanity Road. Well, that may be true, but you might be the only person available to do that. And you may not be trained, but you certainly might be able to do it. If you are their last resort, how can you not help them? The final pillar of volunteerism is supervision. Like trust and training, the need for supervision varies depending upon the activity. Digital humanitarian activities, like monitoring social media, don't require much supervision, but other activities, like case management, require a lot more. There are hundreds of relief organizations, each with specialties. For example, the Salvation Army, the American Red Cross, and the Southern Baptist provide mass feeding and often have mobile kitchen trucks that will produce 10 to 30,000 hot meals per day. The American Red Cross will also train you on how to run a public shelter. The United Methodist Committee on Relief, or UMCOR, the Southern Baptist, and Team Rubicon have extensive muck-out, clean-up, Sawyer training, and training to meet emotional and spiritual needs. Hope Animal Assisted Crisis Response will train you to work with animals to help survivors heal. Adventist Community Services provides training for donations and warehouse management. Catholic Charities, UMCOR, and Lutheran Disaster Response are always looking for trained case managers. Presbyterian Disaster Assistance and Mennonite Disaster Service will train you in rebuilding. And you can probably guess what Operation Barbecue Relief does. Of course, this is just a small sample of training opportunities when you join a relief organization. And this is what we mean by affiliated volunteerism, joining an organization prior to a disaster. Affiliated volunteerism is the gold standard because it plugs you into a response network as soon as the disaster happens. You may already be affiliated and not know it. Local civic, faith-based, and other service groups often respond after disasters. Volunteering within your existing network will always have the highest payoff. 
Like my experience at the Olympics, affiliating with a relief organization essentially gives you a security pass to quickly volunteer after a disaster. Your foundation of trust and training will make it easier for you to serve and every once in a while put you in the right place at the right time to do something pretty cool. Affiliated volunteerism might be the gold standard, but it isn't the only way to volunteer. In the next couple of episodes, we will talk with leaders in digital humanitarianism and community or unaffiliated volunteerism. And believe me, all of the action is in community volunteerism. Remember, if it wasn't overwhelming, it would be called an inconvenience, not a disaster. So if you're feeling a little overwhelmed, don't worry, you're not alone. Thanks for listening. I'm Aaron Titus.